0: Thank you for listening to Yundamu The Trial. Subscribers of The Australian will have access to our full coverage of the trial across all devices. The Australian brings you a daily podcast, exclusive video, audio, news and analysis as the case unfolds. Download The Australian app from your app store or go to theaustralian.com.au forward slash subscribe to view our range of subscription offers.
1: Turn our attention to a developing story in the Northern Territory. A teenager has died after he was shot by police at a remote community.
0: How are we still talking about oh, another oh, black oh,
1: death oh, in this the oh, police? Saturday night oh. was a tragic day for the Northern Territory. A man has died and our Northern Territory police officer has been charged with one count of murder.
0: What they did is not right. That's what Everybody is here to demonstrate today. The member has made it clear that he will plead not guilty and will vigorously contest the charge. The member and his family have the complete support
1: of the NTPA. As Territorians, we have been through challenging times before. We cannot and will not let this divide us.
0: After a tumultuous month of COVID-related delays, secret legal argument, and questions of law so complex that they had to be referred to the full court, the murder trial of Northern Territory Police Officer Zachary Rolfe is set to finally start today. Welcome to Yundamu the Trial. I'm Kristen Shorten and in this episode we'll bring you up to speed on what's happened since Void kicked off five weeks ago and what to expect when the trial gets underway. Matt Cunningham from Sky News is my co-host, and he'll be joining me each day to tell us what happened in court and help decipher the evidence. Hi, Matt. G'day, Kristen. Matt, it feels like a lot has happened since our first episode a couple of weeks ago, and it's been a bit of a roller coaster. But before we explain some of the recent twists and turns in this case, let's take listeners back to July 19, when the week of pre-trial legal argument, known as voir dire, began. Firstly, what is voir dire?
1: Well, the translation from French is to speak the truth. A voir dire is a separate hearing in which the judge determines whether evidence is admittable and can potentially be entered into evidence in the trial. So essentially, pretrial legal arguments is what it is. It's, It's where the two sides sort of nut out how the trial is going to proceed and what will and won't be allowed to be argued in front of the jury.
0: And what was argued during the voir dire?
1: Well, I'd love to tell you, Kristen, but uh, in this case, the court was uh, basically closed for pretty much all of those voirie hearings.
0: However, we do know that there was a question of law raised that was subsequently referred to the full court and heard in open court where media and the public were allowed to attend. So what was that about?
1: Yeah, this was interesting, Kristen. This was about whether Constable Rolfe should be allowed to argue whether he was immune from prosecution uh, if he was uh, under the Police Administration Act, if he was acting in good faith in his role as a police officer. So uh, the defence were arguing that this defence should be available to Constable Rolfe. They are saying that when he entered that house in Yundamu, um, with Constable Ebell, Uh he was there because he was trying to arrest Kumanjai Walker uh, and that he was doing that job, you know, in his designated role as a police officer. Now, the defence says that, that for the entire time that he was in that house, uh, until Kumanjai Walker was detained, uh, that that basically was the period where he was trying to arrest Kumanjai Walker. Um, and therefore, they're saying that he should be uh, covered By the Police Administration Act and therefore immune from prosecution. And they are saying that that is an argument they should be able to make in front of the jury at his trial. Now, the prosecution took a different view. Their argument was that uh, he would. He was covered under the Police Administration Act and he was trying to arrest Kumanjai Walker when the first shot was fired. But their argument essentially was that sometime in that 2.6 seconds between when the first shot was fired and when the second shot was fired, his mindset changed and that he was no longer trying to arrest Kumanjai Walker. They were saying that at that point, he was either trying to kill him or cause him grievous bodily harm. And for that reason, they say that, the defence, that defence, that immunity should not be available to him under that Police Administration Act.
0: And what was the full court's decision?
1: Well, the full court, basically on the most essential question, the full court ruled uh, in the defence's favour. So uh, they ruled that it that they didn't think it was right to be able to separate the arrest attempt from between the first and the second shots. That they, they, they were basically saying that um, the entire time that he was there, uh, he was acting in his role as a police officer, and therefore he should be able to argue in front of a jury um, that that defence um, of immunity under the Police Administration Act should apply. It was a 5-0 decision, actually. E- every, um, so the full bench of the Supreme Court heard um, the matter. Five judges sat in on that hearing, and all five of them agreed that uh, the defence should be able to use that argument, that defence, um, during the jury trial.
0: Now, following the full court's decision, the prosecution raised the prospect of an appeal at the 11th hour last week. What happened on Thursday?
1: So the full court decision was handed down on, on Friday the 13th. Now, on, on Thursday um, the 19th, there was another hearing in the Supreme Court where the prosecution basically argued for the trial to be suspended, for it to be delayed, so that it could seek leave to the high court to appeal the full court's decision. So it made those arguments in front of um, the acting justice, Dean Mildren. Prosecution's case was that the decision that was made by uh, the full court was manifestly wrong, uh, that if Constable Rolfe was acquitted in a trial where uh, that defence had been relied upon, well then that could be uh, an error in law. And so it wanted the, the trial halted so that it could go and appeal that matter to the High Court. Now, the defence took a very different view. They, um, David Edwardson QC said that um, to argue that there was uh, an error in the full court's decision was nonsense, uh, given that all five of the judges in the full court had basically ruled the same way, that there was no dissenting view. David Edwardson, Edwardson uh, made the point that he believed that uh, it would be unlikely that such an appeal would succeed at the High Court. And so he argued um, that the trial needed to start as planned on Monday. Just uh, Acting Justice Dean Mildren ruled in the defence's favour. He said that when he balanced up uh, the competing arguments, he said uh, basically that he was of the view that he didn't believe the likelihood of success at the High Court was strong for the prosecution. And he also said that this, this was a trial that had already faced significant delays because of COVID-19. Uh, and for that reason, or for those reasons, um, he dismissed the application and, and he ruled that the trial should begin on Monday, the 23rd of August.
0: That's right. And I think Judge Mildred also made mention of the fact that Rolf's uh, life has been in a sort of legal limbo for almost two years now. And if that stay had been granted and the matter was referred or taken to the High Court, the trial could be delayed indefinitely. How long do you think that an appeal like that would take?
1: Well, it would have taken several months, and and Justice Mildred made the point in court that the earliest court date he could envisage if uh, this went to the High Court and the High Court had to decide about this would be in April or May next year. Now, remembering that it's already almost 22 months since the incident occurred, that would push it out to uh, two and a half years uh, since the incident occurred that the matter would proceed to trial. He also raised concerns about uh, or, or addressed some of the concerns about uh, sort of the dimming of the memory of witnesses. Um, we're expecting, you know, up to 50 witnesses to be called in this trial. And obviously, the longer the delay between the incident and the trial, you know, the less reliable their account of events uh, might be. Uh, so that was a factor. But you're right. The other factor, you know, was, you know, the impact it has not only on the accused, but also on the accused family, um, uh, friends and and witnesses as well, Um Who've seen this drag out for quite some time already, um, mostly because of the COVID nineteen situation.
0: Yeah, the impact on everyone involved, really. So, who was at court on Thursday, Matt?
1: Well, Constable Rolfe was was in court, and it was interesting that this was the first time at any of the hearings that he's actually sat in the dock. Um, and there might have been some significance around that, um, particularly when it comes um, to his plea and the argument. The other argument that was made by the defence during this hearing. And that was that their argument was that, in their view, because Constable Rolfe had already entered a plea, that they said the trial had already begun, so if the High court appeal was allowed, it would be essentially stopping a trial um midstream, which they didn't think was appropriate he, his His parents were uh, at the court hearing there was a large um section of media for the first time up until this point it's basically just been the local. Um, Darwin Media who's been attending these hearings but there were uh, a number of journalists who've come in from other parts of the country to cover the case uh, who were at that hearing and also um, there were members of the Northern Territory Police Association and the Police Association President Paul McHugh uh, who's been at pretty much every hearing since uh, this case began.
0: And how did Constable Rolfe seem to
1: well, he just sat there quietly in the dock. He really didn't show any expression throughout um, the entire hearing. And then, uh, you know, he said nothing uh, as he left the court afterwards. So, I mean, he, he really um, didn't show a lot of emotion at all.
0: Did anyone say anything to the media outside court?
1: Yes, both of the both the defence barrister, David Edwardson QC, and the uh, prosecution counsel, Philip Strickland SC spoke briefly after the hearing. We might take a bit of a listen to what they had to say.
0: Are you pleased with that decision, Mr.
1: President? Very. The stay was refused, and we will probably, uh, will most definitely, file a stay application in the High Court to see if that refusal is overturned, and we'll see how we go then.
0: But if that doesn't happen before the trial actually starts, can the trial start?
1: We'll see. Okay. Can't say anything else at this stage. So that was David Edwardson and Philip Strickland speaking outside the Supreme Court after that hearing.
0: And so, Matt, that hearing on Thursday where Judge Mildred dismissed the prosecution's application for the stay, was that the end of that matter?
1: No, it wasn't. And as you heard Philip Strickland um, say in that audio... Um, and he said this inside court as well, as soon as the decision was handed down in favour of the defence, Philip Strickland immediately got up and said that the prosecution would make an application to get an urgent hearing uh, of this matter at the High Court. So an attempt to get the High Court um, to issue that stay of proceedings while it seeks leave to the High Court to appeal the full court's decision.
0: So Matt, do we know what the outcome of that application to the High Court on Friday was?
1: Well, on Friday, Kristen, the High Court decided to reserve its decision on whether it would allow a stay in proceedings until 9.30am on Monday. So here we are on the first day of the trial, or at least what's supposed to be the first day of the trial, And we won't know until 9.30 this morning whether the trial will actually go ahead. So the High Court will either uh, reject the application from the prosecution, in which case the trial will begin at 10 a.m. local time in the Northern Territory Supreme Court, or the High Court will agree to stay the proceedings until it can decide whether it will give uh, the prosecution leave to appeal the full court's decision. So uh, it's the morning that the trial is supposed to begin, but really we're still uh, in limbo. We still don't know if this trial is going to go ahead.
0: Now, after that first week of pre trial argument, or voidir, the jury was supposed to be sworn in on July 26. Why didn't that happen?
1: Well, there's been a series of coronavirus related interruptions. So the trial was initially delayed um, because of COVID related travel restrictions, which impacted the prosecution. Um, team. So at one stage, uh, it looked like the trial could be delayed until 2022 due to not only the indefinite lockdowns and travel restrictions, but also the prosecutor's future availability. Now, uh, eventually, um, Philip Strickland uh, SC agreed to do two weeks in quarantine at the Howard Springs facility in Darwin. He's based in Sydney to allow the trial uh, to go ahead. But Uh, he couldn't get up here by the 26th of July. So that basically forced the trial to be delayed.
0: So Matt, the trial was then due to start last week on Wednesday, August 18, which was actually Rolf's 30th birthday, but was then delayed again. What happened this time?
1: Well, this time it was a coronavirus uh, scare in Darwin. Uh, there was one case of uh, COVID-19 um, that saw the greater Darwin area put into a three-day lockdown. So that lockdown uh, came into place on the Monday and uh, it meant that basically um, the trial couldn't go ahead on the Wednesday because Darwin was still in lockdown. So in the end, it was deferred until, until today.
0: So is everyone now in Darwin and ready to go, Matt?
1: They are. So as I was saying before, the lead prosecutor, Philip Strickland SC, eventually agreed to quarantine in Darwin for two weeks um, to prevent indefinite delays to the trial. And he completed his 14-day quarantine at Howard Springs last Monday. However, um, his junior barrister, Sophie Callan, she was forced to pull out. Um, because she couldn't make it to Darwin. So she was replaced by Melbourne-based junior barrister Joanne Poole um, who is now in Darwin. Uh, She managed to get up here in the small window while the Northern Territory's borders were open to to Victoria but they've subsequently um, closed. Now Constable Rolfe's obviously here. His parents have been in Darwin since early July, uh, waiting for the start of this trial. His defence barrister, David Edwardson QC, he's remained in Darwin for most of the time since July. He's obviously trying to avoid um, becoming stuck in a lockdown uh, as well. He's actually based in Adelaide. There have been fewer lockdowns uh, and, and fewer border closures to Adelaide, but I think it's got to the point where everyone thinks that they just can't be too sure. So once they're in Darwin, I think they've decided it's better off if they stay here.
0: Definitely. It's a nice time of year to be up there at least. And what's expected to happen on the first day?
1: Well, we expect jury selection to take at least half of the first day. So 12 people will be selected from the greater Darwin region to sit on the jury for this case. And Obviously, the prosecution and the defence will have the opportunity to go through and strike out people they don't think are appropriate. But by the end of day one, we should have 12 people in place who are ultimately going to decide whether they believe that Constable Rolfe is guilty or not guilty. Then we'll hear the opening. So the prosecution opens to the jury and tells the jury what their case is and how they're going to prove what they say they're going to prove.
0: Do we know who's expected to be called to give evidence?
1: Well, there are about 50 witnesses expected to give evidence. Uh, having regard to the committal, it's likely that the witnesses uh, who will be called will include um, the officers uh, in, in, involved in attempts to search properties connected to Kumon Walker in Alice Springs and Yundamu uh, in the lead up to the shooting, the police officers involved in what's known as the axe incident. So there you've got Senior Constable First Class Christopher Hand and Senior Constable Lanyon Smith. Um, the three other IRT members who travelled to Yundamu with Constable Rolf, so Constable First Class uh, Adam Burl, Constable James Kirstenfeld, Constable First Class Anthony Hawkins, uh, they were all deployed to Yundamu with Rolf, um, as well as Police Dog Handler, uh, Senior Constable First Class Adam Donaldson and his canine. Uh, Yundamu Remote Sergeant at the time, uh, Julie Frost, we expect we may hear from her, and there will no doubt be a number of community witnesses. Now, the most important prosecution witness will be NT Police use of force expert, Detective Senior Sergeant Andrew Barham, who is a Detective Senior Sergeant with 23 years experience in the NT Police Force and attached to its Professional Standards Command Unit. There will probably be also be other experts who go through biomechanics and the training of Zach Rolfe, uh, as well as other police officers. Can
0: we expect to see the Northern Territory Police Commissioner or other members of the police brass at court?
1: We will see some of them, no doubt. Who, though, it's not clear, but we could possibly hear from or at least see at court the NT Police Commissioner, Jamie Chalker, or his barrister, Mary Chalmers, um, the Assistant Commissioner, Nick Antasich. Uh, there's a possibility that he will be called. Also, Senior Investigating Officer, Detective Superintendent, Kirk Benuto, and his Deputy Senior Investigating Officer, Detective Senior Sergeant, Mark Malagorski.
0: Who do you expect to attend court in support of Rolf?
1: Well, as I said earlier, um, Paul McHugh, the president of the Northern Territory Police Association, uh, has been in court uh, pretty much every day for every hearing there's been so far. Um, there were plans to actually get the presidents of all of the police unions from around the country to come to Darwin for this trial, but um, COVID-19 put a stop to that, and um, Rolf's parents, uh, they've been there uh, throughout the voir dire and we expect that they will be there throughout the uh, entire um, trial. And there's also been some um, other members of the Police Association, friends and supporters of his, um, who we've seen so far and we, we also expect to be there um, when the trial begins.
0: Matt, do you expect supporters of Cummins-Jay Walker to attend the trial in Darwin in person?
1: Uh, We do, Kristen. In fact, uh, there were uh, quite a few of them who were already on their way from Ewan to Darwin uh, last week. And, in fact, they had to uh, turn their buses around and go back home because of this latest COVID uh, situation that forced lockdowns in the top end in Catherine and in the greater Darwin region. But we do expect uh, there to be a a strong group of supporters there, um, of Koemanjai Walker supporters uh, outside the court lending their voice and lending their support um, to his family.
0: And what do you expect the police presence outside the Supreme Court to be like?
1: Well, from what we've seen so far, Chris and I'd expect it to be significant. I was actually quite surprised um, to show up outside court on the first day of the voir and see such a strong police presence there. There were at least four CCTV, mobile CCTV cameras that had been set up. There was a mobile police van um, that had been set up and there was probably close to 10 officers uh, who were there uh, wandering around. Um, just keeping an eye on things uh, outside, on the lawns outside um, the courthouse uh, itself. So, uh, I think that was probably done in an abundance of caution because there are actually um, no supporters, um, really, or no protesters um, on from from either side of this uh, of this case uh, who showed up during the voir dire. Um But there's, there's obviously police are of the belief that that. Um, most likely will happen at some point. And so they've certainly had that police presence there throughout the voir dire, and I expect uh, it will be there um, throughout the trial.
0: And how long do we now expect the trial to run for?
1: Well, the hearing was originally expected to run for four weeks, but we now think it'll probably be closer to three. So uh, if that was the case, it would be wrapping up uh, mid-September, Uh, that would be when we would expect the jury to be asked to, uh, to reach a verdict.
0: Excellent. Well, thanks for bringing listeners up to speed, Matt, and I look forward to chatting with you again tonight to find out exactly what happened on day one of what is set to be one of the Territories and Australia's most significant legal cases. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Yundamu The Trial. If you want to access ongoing coverage of The Trial, please subscribe to The Australian and listen via our app. Subscribers of The Australian will have access to our full coverage of The Trial across all devices. Yundamu The Trial is presented and produced by me, Kristen Shorten and Matt Cunningham. It's produced and edited by Leah Semeglou and Claire Harvey is our editorial director. This podcast was made possible by subscribers to The Australian.